You may be seated. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, Pastor Tony is teaching this week in uh, Sangre de Cristo Seminary in Colorado, where he has my son Josh as a student, so pray for Tony. Or maybe pray for Josh. I don't know. Both of them need your prayers, but he'll be traveling back and will be with us next Sunday. That gives us the opportunity to look into the book of Ecclesiastes again. And what's interesting is that we see the beginning of Ecclesiastes 7 use a section of poetry. Now, we've come across this already a couple times in the book of Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiastes, the word of the preacher, using poetry in order to make his points pop out, to stick, to stay with the listener. And now, Hebrew poetry isn't the same as our English poetry where they rhyme at the end of each line. There are different devices of comparison and parallelism and, and uh, even alliteration at times. But in chapter 1, we see that the preacher employs poetical use of word pictures from nature in particular. He uses the sun and the wind and the streams to kind of connect his truths, his thoughts to something that you could see in the world around. This is poetry. In chapter 3, you remember that the preacher leads with a repetitive pattern that communicates to our ears kind of the rhythm and the cycle of back and forth for every season. There is a time and season for everything under the sun, a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that, for us to really kind of come in line with what He is trying to get across to us. It's almost like a, a tick-tock of a clock as we see in chapter 3. But now again, in chapter 7, the preacher employs a, po a poem in the first 13 verses. And you see in your bulletin insert, I have those first 14 verses, and then we skip a bit and get, pick it up at verse 25 again. But actually, verses 14 through the end of the chapter is prose. It's His description of kind of the implications of what we're being taught in this poem. This poem gives sort of a song of the heart of wisdom. And what is that song? Well, it's a long series of comparisons of what's better than this. This is better than that. And so, as we read and listen to this poem, take note of his assessment that follows in the prose. I'll read this chapter for us this morning in its entirety, but I'll primarily focus on what is printed on your bulletin for the message. Hear the Word of God, the inspired and inerrant authoritative Word. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into wet madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from the wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is the wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers who, rule, who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among the a thousand I found, but a woman among all of these I have not found." See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to this, Your Word, that You have revealed to us. Lord, in creation, You have declared Your glory. You have shown us Your power and Your strength and Your might, but Your creation could not communicate the clarity of the good news that Your Word has given to us. We thank You for its testimony from cover to cover, showing that You have a plan to redeem a people for Yourself. And Lord, we thank You for the book of Ecclesiastes, as challenging and difficult as it is to hear some of the hard words, Lord, You have given us great wisdom and insight, and You have planted seeds of hope and truth in there. And so, Lord, as we come before Your Word, I pray that You would give us humble hearts, that we would not elevate our opinions and our attitudes above Your Holy Word, but that we would truly sit at Your feet, that our lives would conform to Your Word. Lord, this is impossible on our own, with our own strength, but by Your enabling Holy Spirit, you have given us all things that we need for life and godliness. Lord, I pray that we would be challenged and encouraged by the word of truth. 
Sanctify us by your truth, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the very first words of this chapter help us to get a little glimpse into where he is going with the rest of his explanation. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, this saying doesn't really translate the poetic features of what is in the original Hebrew, but it's making a comparison between a name and ointment. Now, the ointment would be what is used for perfume. Uh, Nard might be one of the uh, ointments that you've heard described in the Bible before, something that would make you smell good, but a good name. This name represents your reputation, your character. And so, this word name, the good name, Shem in Hebrew, is better than good ointment, which is Shemen in Hebrew. So, it's using two similar-sounding words to say, this is better than that. So, the likeness between reputation and what you smell like, what people think of when they're around you. It could be based on your character, on your name, or it could be based on something just superficial, something you've just kind of added on. So, the contrast between reputation, which is an honorable attainment, and then an odor that you put on just for people to smell is the difference between what is eternal, what is significant and internal, versus what is external and what is to impress others. Bottom line, do you want to have a good reputation or do you want to smell nice? And that sets the theme. Do you want what's lasting, what's valuable, what really satisfies, or do you want just what's passing and temporary, what pleases other people? It represents the value that we mistakenly put on the external. And the preacher's call back to what is significant, your name, your character, that's what really matters before God. And so, with that in mind, we recognize ourselves in Ecclesiastes 7, don't we? That we often settle for those external people-pleasing things than, when, than for true and genuine character. Uh, we as a culture do this too. As an American culture, even in our church culture, we praise and worship the people who perform music for us, sports figures, those who are uh, high achievers in the business world, those who are uh, particularly influential social influencers. We like their style, but they lack substance quite often. And that's because we prioritize it. That's what we clamor for. That's what we want. Ecclesiastes 7 is appeal to the heart of the wise. Don't settle for that external, but really pursue what makes a difference in the inner man. It's wise versus foolish, and it's foolish to focus on the externals. It's wise to focus on the internals. So, this is ultimately going to drive us, if we want to pursue good character, to Christ. We can't arrive there on our own. We need Christ. And the seeds here being planted in Ecclesiastes 7 are going to lead us right to Christ. The heart of the wise understands that God uses hard times to drive us to Christ and to shape our character. 
Let's look at the beginning of this poem and understand wisdom is gleaned from death and suffering. Look at the way the preacher lines this up. So after the good name is better than precious ointment, he compares death and birth, going to the house of mourning to the house of feasting. He lines these choices up, and if he didn't tell you what is truly better, I think each one of us would fall for the wrong answer. That's just pragmatically how we would look at it. I think we would pick the opposite. Here's he's making a choice between the ending of life or the starting of life. Uh, I'll take the starting of life. That's a lot better. Um, a funeral or a birthday party? I'm going to have to choose birthday party on that one. How about crying or laughing? Um, I don't like the ugly cry. Let's do the, the, the laughing. Hearing a rebuke or hearing a song? Oh, I love rebukes. Give me more. No, we're usually not focused that way. The end of the thing or the beginning of the thing? I want to get started. I want to be at the beginning, and I don't want to see something come to a close. He may as well be asking, do you want broccoli or do you want ice cream? What are you going to choose? Of course, when we look at it as the preacher has been setting out before us, two different planes of viewing are under the sun perspective, it's real easy for us to make the wrong choice. We need an over the sun perspective to make the better choice. So, pretty much obvious answers, they're going to be the under the sun way of looking. Hey, give me a good, pleasant, satisfying, happy times, please. I don't need the sad, the sickness, the sorrow, the pain, the trouble, the death. But from God's point of view, from the over-the-sun perspective, wisdom is best gleaned from suffering and from death. This is not some masochistic way of saying, God, hit me hard. I love it when you, when you, when you give me trials. It's, it's not to have that type of uh, brazen attitude, but it's really, Lord, I'm in the midst of this adversity that you have brought. Teach me. Uh, train me. Show me wisdom in the midst of this ad adversity. It's also not meant to make us just gloomy all the time, depressed and sad. Uh, we should be somber. We should be contemplative about some of these challenging adversities in our lives. But we shouldn't be to the point of despair. You remember Paul, when he described the afflictions that he had, he called them light and momentary afflictions, working the weight of eternal glory. But he talked about beatings and imprisonments and stonings and all these adversities. And those don't seem like minor things, but Paul learned from them, and he grew in the midst of those. Glean as much wisdom as you can in the, adverse, in the times of adversity. I've heard it said that God is more devoted to my personal holiness than to my happiness. That's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? I, I really wish it were the other way around, or I could have them both, and I would never have to have the adversity. I know it's hard, but it's absolutely true. And it seems that every time in my um, opportunities to counsel people, when they're facing challenges, 
just adversity, heartbreak, sorrow, and sadness. I seem to, I end up introducing them to a, a video snippet by Paul Tripp when he's talking about Mark 6, 45 to 52. In that passage, Jesus made His disciples to get into a boat and to row across the, the lake. And they rode and rode, but Mark says this, they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. All night this went on until Jesus is walking by on the water and they see Him. They were so worn out, they were dismayed. When they saw Jesus, they were terrified. They thought, this is a ghost. Then He spoke to him and He said, take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And He got in the boat with them. The wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Well, Paul, Paul Tripp makes the point about this passage that this moment of suffering and difficulty and hard rowing and being out in the middle of a, of a hard sea was not something that was a result of the disciples doing something sinful or unwise. It wasn't the result of somebody sinfully oppressing them. Their position of adversity and the difficulty they were facing was because Jesus made them get into the boat. That was the exact place that Jesus wanted them to be in. It wasn't random. It wasn't by chance. He specifically designed that to work in them faith in Him and holiness of character. Tripp says, God will take you where you never intended to go in order to work in you what you could never do for yourself. He repeats that again and again to underline that God's plan for you may and will contain hard things that you have to deal with, and He's doing it to win you to Himself and to work holiness in you. You couldn't do that on your own. You couldn't do that just in times of pleasantness. It is, in fact, what He calls uncomfortable grace. It's a blessing. It's goodness, and He gives it to us because He loves us. God uses hard times to drive us to Christ and to shape our character. Look at verses 13 and 14. As he kind of concludes this poem, there's humility being grown by embracing God's providence. Verse 13 says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? Wow. Um, God's made paths for our lives. I think, generally speaking, we see in the Bible different uh, times where we're described, uh, life is described as a way or a path. We're following a path, and He leads us on a path. Well, when God makes crooked paths, that's a little harder to navigate than if there was a straight path. I mean, I'm pretty excited that now 159th Street goes, is open again all the way to my house. It was a time where there was construction, they're adding a new light, but when I go down 159th this week, man, it's a straight shot, boom, all the way to my house. Now, when I come back, when I'm driving into church, there's this one spot in Olathe as I'm coming that the wider road goes to a narrow road, and I don't know if there's some landmark or something that they have to move around, but it kind of cuts in and then goes straight again. And if I don't have at night my lights on and I'm paying attention, I have this like, you know, jerk over in order to stay on the path. If it were my 
planning, and I designed all the roads in Olathe and Overland Park straight, right? You, I don't want to mess with all the crooked paths. So, this analogy is pretty clear to us. I think when God makes something crooked, who are we to try and make it straight? Are you God? And in fact, when we say we would like to change this about our lives and make this the way it turns out, aren't we saying that we could write a better story than God could write? It seems pretty bold and pretty um, prideful to say, no, God, you got it all wrong. My path needs to be straight, easy going, clear sailing. But God has made crooked paths. We're not God. It's a folly to try and play God. Then verse 14, it says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God's made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. All right, God did make some days of prosperity. What do you do when things are working out, when things are going well, when you're kind of in this season of prosperity? He says it, be joyful. It fits with the theme of the rest of Ecclesiastes. Those temporary earthly gifts of a good life are given by God for us to enjoy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy yourself. Don't look to them to satisfy your soul. We saw that from chapter 6. But enjoy them when they come. What are you to do when there are days of adversity? When you're going through those times where it just shakes you, it just unsettles you when there's pain and hurt and sorrow. This is a time to consider that this is God's plan too. He's made one as well as the other. He hasn't just made joyful times. He's also made times of adversity for us. So that, it ends with, man may not find out anything that will be after him. What does that mean? It means that you can't be certain about what the future holds. You don't know what's coming next. God can change the direction if He wants to. He can go in whichever way He wants. When we embrace His providence, we humble ourselves before the God who says, I make the plans, I make the decrees. Our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, section 5, really brings together some of the truths from God's Word about providence. Providence is how God orders life, the way that His plan plays itself out in our day-to-day -day existence. And this is what our confession says, are some of the reasons and the rationales that God brings things into our life. It says, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God, let me repeat that, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them of their former sins, or to cover, discover unto them the hidden strength of the corruption and deceitfulness of their own hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself." and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. I like how he, they, they just kind of include everything else. He's got some other just and sundry ends. Whatever He ordains is right. When we get into perspective that this almighty, powerful, 
creator and king of all, the sovereign one, he has ordered our steps. But he's not just bare brute force and power. He is our loving, wise, righteous, gracious God. God is complete, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in each of his perfections. He is so in his sovereignty, and he is so in his love. Remember that he's all-powerful, but he also loves his children with an everlasting love. And so whatever he ordains is right, and it's good. And it's not good in the pleasant sense for us, but it will be for our good in working conformity to Christ, in shaping our character, in humbling our hearts. So what do we do when we respond to prosperity and adversity? We must not fall into this woe-is-me-ism, this pessimism that just we're always gloomy and always down about this next bad thing that comes into our life. Don't, don't slip into that complaining attitude. I'll, I'll talk more about that in a second. We must also not assume some religious-sounding triumphalism. Whatever happens, you know, God's going to bless. He's going to bring prosperity. He's going to bring my best life now. That we, we, we don't see that from the Scripture here. When we have somebody that's going through a tough time and we want to come alongside them and encourage them, we should never say to them, I know things are rough night right now, but things have got to get better or things will get better. That's a false hope because we don't know which will be the outcome, how things will proceed for the next step in their lives. We can give them the hope of eternity, and that eternal hope should be far more significant than the, the, the temporal hope that we can give. When we give this false assurance, we're not embracing God's providence. Or sometimes I get into this mentality of, all right, things are going well. Things are pleasant. I'm happy about this, but I can't be happy very long because I'm thinking, okay, this is too good to be true. Something's going to bad, bad's going to happen, right? Do you find yourself just being skeptical? And then your attitude and demeanor is just like always on edge for things to go bad. Instead of in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Would you enjoy it while you got it? And then not slip into that that false understanding of, oh, something fatalistic, this fatalistic thinking, something bad's going to happen. God's providence is what we have to embrace. Look at verse 15. 15 and 16 say, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. This is his cry. This is his lament. Why do the wicked prosper? And why do the righteous suffer? How many of the psalms of lament are fixed on that similar theme? You know, the lament psalms probably make up to one person's estimate about 70% of the psalms include some form of lament, personal lament, corporate lament. What the preacher is lamenting over is why do righteous people suffer and wicked people prosper? I was speaking somebody, with somebody this week about uh, biblical laments versus unbiblical complaining. So when we get into this mindset that I want to be honest with God, 
I just got to pour out my heart to God. I need to be brutally true and honest with God. He welcomes that. He's good with that. Read some of these Psalms of lament. Hear what David says. But a psalm of a lament that is biblical looks different than one that is just complaining. And uh, I was sharing this. One author describes uh, the laments that are complaining are like a cul-de-sac. We, we go into them, and we start our lament, and we don't, can't get out. We just keep circling around, circling around, and it turns into just kind of complaining. Whereas a biblical lament is, I'm saying all the truth and all the hurt and all the pain and everything is bad, but I'm, it's a bridge that goes somewhere. It goes to that place where God is, that God is both the source and He's the solution for the troubles that I'm facing because He wants us to come near to Him and not just be stuck in our own minds and in our own heads. Biblical laments are that bridge. Job, he wrestled with God over the adversity that was in his life, and he concluded, shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Don't slip into resentment. Don't slip into arguing and fighting against God. Understand that He is the gracious and loving God who has a plan for us. I was challenged when a commentator said, the key question is not why do the righteous suffer, but do we worship a God that's worthy of our suffering? Is God worth it? Would you endure the trials that He's set before you because of His glory for His honor? He is worth it. Verse 16 and 17 sounds strange at first glance, but I think it'll make sense if we dig a little deeper. Verse 16 says, do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? And then be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Uh, these sound like um, kind of what I uh, would call the learning the fine art of mediocrity, right? Not to be the, the overachiever but not to be the slacker. You find some place in the middle and you'll be just fine. You can get, get along. This, that's not what he's saying here. He's really calling out those who would, by kind of pharisaical righteousness and, and religious performance, try to honor God by, by doing it in their own strength. And the same is true for the wickedness, to be just full out and going uh, headlong against God. Neither of those uh, are where God wants us. He wants us to humble ourselves, even under God's hard providence, so that we would grow in the fear of, the, uh, fear of God. Verse 25 then starts this conclusion where he shows us how his design gives us some hope for us in the midst of our depravity. It's no secret that the preacher understands the depravity of man. I think we understand the depravity of man because it's what's in us and what's around us. So in verse 25 when he says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom, the scheme of things, to know the wickedness of folly, the foolishness, that's madness. He went all out. And Solomon's personal testimony of this tragedy 
shows that the depravity of man can extend to every corner of our hearts. Solomon calls it wickedness. He calls it foolishness. He calls it madness. And in verse 26, this wickedness, madness, folly is personified. Verse 26, I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, before you think that Solomon is just running down women here, it's what was done in the book of Proverbs as well as in Ecclesiastes. In Proverbs chapter 9, we read about wisdom being personified as, as a woman. And then we see folly being personified as a woman. Just to personify this, this foolishness in terms of uh, a person, like we would um, use the female personification for a, a ship, a, a vessel, a boat. We use the, the feminine designation. At least now we do. I don't, I don't know how long that will last. But the fact is, he's not putting down women. He's actually saying there's this characterization of, of folly, and you can escape her as you please the Lord. But sinners, they're going to get trapped by her. Verse 27, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man in a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, that's his personal testimony of how rare it is to find righteousness, but how common it is for depravity. It's, it's his hyperbolic way of saying all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Even our filthy rags, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. And so, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 25 confirms, though, that it was sought out with many schemes. But look at verse 29. This alone I found that God made man upright. It's like a wake-up call. It's like a glimmer of light is coming from above the sun. It's coming to show us that God created us in His own image and likeness, perfect in holiness and righteousness with dominion over the creatures. That's our good design that God created us with. Now, the tragic choice of Adam and Eve to rebel against God shattered that image, but it didn't eradicate it. And so, God's plan is to restore that image of God and man and to redeem it, and to make it right. Put this together here. There is hope from this over-the-sun perspective, that there can be one who pleases God. It can be us understanding that we have been made upright in His image. But we need to look further than Ecclesiastes to see where this comes to fruition. The seeds are planted here, but the fruit is in later on. We see about God's plan, that God revealed the problem of depravity. It can't be remedied by you or me. It can't be rem remedied by us trying harder or doing better. It has to be what God could do, what God would do, because He had to become man. Through Jesus Christ, He dwelt among us, for the God-man to live completely righteous where we couldn't, and to give us 
His reward for obedience in exchange for the punishment we deserve for our disobedience. God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This plan that God had to take us broken and depraved sinners and to remake that image in us and to rescue us is the theme of all of Scripture. The Bible is about a rescue mission that God went on to save us from our own sinful selves. And so, when we look at the tragedy of the fall in the garden, death comes, sickness comes, disease comes, all the troubles in life started because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Our catechism, I think my favorite catechism question is question number 20. The question is, did God leave all mankind to perish in this estate of sin and misery? That's what our catechism describes. As soon as the man fell, they lost communion with God, they're under His wrath and curse, and they're made liable to all the difficulties and troubles and tribulations. And did God leave us there? The answer, I would like to amend the Westminster Confession of Faith and add a word. Now, that'd be a big challenge at our denomination's General Assembly. I'd have to get like two-thirds approval, and then we'd send it back to the Presbyterians and come back. But I just want the answer to, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of misery? I want to say, no, with an exclamation point. He didn't. God, having out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into a state of a salvation by a Redeemer. What we couldn't do for ourselves, God had to do for us. And He had to enter into this covenant and be the one who would meet all of its terms and take on all of its punishments so that He could grant us eternal life. We have a Redeemer. It's in the Lord Jesus. Your Jay Adams says this about um, this concept, your real hope in trouble, your only certain hope in despair is in God, the God who against all odds promised redemption for lost men, and He delivered. So the heart of the wise, when you see Ecclesiastes 7, understands that God uses hard times. He uses the hard times to drive us to Christ, to shape our character. And this wisdom that we have, this heart of wisdom, is gleaned best in those times of difficulty, death and suffering. And when we understand God's providence and we embrace God's providence, we grow in humility. And God's design actually gives us hope, even in our state of depravity. Someone recently shared a thought from Elizabeth Elliot that I'll close this morning with. She said, Jesus learned obedience by the things which He suffered, not by the things which He enjoyed. In order to fit you for His purposes, both here and in eternity, He has lent you His sorrow, but He bears the heavier end of the cross laid upon you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for bearing the cross that 
brings us new life and victory. Thank You for the trials in our life that are hard for us to understand, hard for us to uh, persevere under, but are part of Your plan to bring us to Yourself, to rescue us from the sin and misery of this life. Lord, we pray that as You work in us, Your Holy Spirit would, would actively help us to apply this in our lives. Lord, I know some are really facing times of difficulty and hardship and adversity. It's easy to grow weary. It's easy to grow uh, dismal in our thoughts. But Lord, I pray that You would teach us, that You would show us, that You would drive us to Jesus, and that You would grow our character so that we would look more like Jesus. All this by Your grace, because we could never do it in our own strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is a prayer, hymn 644. It's, May the mind of Christ my Savior. We'll sing verses 1 through